you're in partnership with a lot of people when you're an author. Keep that in mind and treat it like a business because it is a business. You know, you don't just write a book and then expect everybody to come find it because how are they going to know it's out there unless you're telling everybody it's out there? Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Welcome to the August Business of Writing edition. Today's guest is somebody that I have come across on Instagram and followed and really enjoy her posts. I'm now also enjoying her books. It's Alka Joshi. Alka is the author of The Henna Artist and The Secret Keeper of Jaipur. She was born in Jodhpur, Rajasthan in India and has lived in the US since the age of nine. Alka spent many years working in advertising and marketing copy. After being encouraged by her husband to try writing fiction, Alka took evening workshops before enrolling in an MFA program in creative writing at the age of 51. The Henna Artist was Alka's debut novel published by Mira Books a division of HarperCollins, followed by The Secret Keeper, and she's now working on the third book in the trilogy. As I said, I first came across Alka on Instagram, where she has over 15,000 followers. Her posts are colourful and animated, like her book covers, and feature video interviews with fellow authors. They're posts that make you want to click and find out more, just as her books make you want to keep reading. So, I decided to invite Alka on the podcast today to talk about her books, of course, but also to talk about this whole idea of author branding, social media, and in particular, Instagram, and how she has built that following. So I'm really excited to have Alka Joshi join me on the Convo Couch today. So Alka, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here with your Australian audience. Yeah, well, it's lovely to have you. And, you know, as I mentioned to you and, and in the introduction, I've been following you for a while now on Instagram and loving your posts, and now I'm loving your books. So I'm really <laughs> excited to talk to you about both those things, actually. So The Secret Keeper of Jaipur is your second book in a trilogy. The first was The Henna Artist. Can you give us a little overview of, of the whole idea for the trilogy and the stories themselves and where you got the inspiration from? Yeah. In 2008, there was this big mortgage crisis and I had been running my advertising and marketing agency for quite a while. So I knew that every time there's an economic crisis, there's going to be about a two-year period in which my revenues will go down because clients get a little shaky about how much their budgets are and you know they start cutting back or they delay projects and so on. So I thought, okay, what can I do in these next two years? I always liked it when there were these economic downtimes, because it meant I get to take time off and do something else. So in that two years, it was a perfect time for me to start doing this master's program in creative writing and learn how to write a novel, which is something my husband had been encouraging me to do for decades. And I, I kept saying, I'm an advertising writer. I'm just a hack. I do these 30 second, one minute commercials. I don't know how to do long form fiction. And he said, well, you could always take classes and learn. You'd be really good at it. So that's what I decided to do. And at the same time, I was ferrying my mother back and forth to Jaipur. Now, Jaipur is where we used to live at one time. It's also the place where my extended family still lives largely. And so every time we go visit India, we always go to Jaipur and we always visit when we're there. So my mom wanted me to chaperone her there, to leave her there because she was in her late 70s. And she said, you know, just leave me here. And then you go back and finish your semester, come back and get me at the end. So I would do that back and forth, back and forth, four or five times, six times during that uh, period. 
And so as I was learning how to write a novel, I'm also spending more time with my mother and experiencing Japper through her eyes. Mm. So she is showing me the fruit market and what she liked to shop for as a young uh, girl and then also as a young mother. We went to her old school and she told me this, the subject she liked, the, the girlfriends that she had that she liked to hang out with. And then she told me, you know, when, when I was 18 and in my first year of college here, your, your grandfather called me and said he had arranged a marriage for a young engineer for me. And uh, so I had to go back home and I never went back to school after that. Um, and, you know, throughout our time together, mom was telling me things about how she felt being such a young mother at 18 and then at 19 and then at 20. And within four years, you know, she had three really small kids to look mm. after. She also was constantly moving house because my father was constantly being put on different engineering projects. Either he was building a road or a dam or a bridge or some new building. And so we had moved by the time I was nine years old about five different times. And so in all of her telling, I realized that my mother had had such a different life than me. She had never had the opportunity to choose her partner, to choose her career, to choose her children, uh, you know, when she would have them, how many she would have. But with me, you know, I'm her only daughter. I'm in the middle of two brothers. And with me, she said, you get to do whatever you want in your life. So I thought, what if I could create a fictional life for her? I think the kind of life she would have liked to have lived, the kind of life that she allowed me to have mm. in the character of Lakshmi. And that is how the Hannah artist was born, because I had to give Lakshmi a profession that she could have had without a lot of experience, without a lot of training. And Hannah is something that's been practiced for millennia in India. When I was growing up as a kid, I saw all of my aunties and neighbors and my mom, everybody always had henna on their hands. It's it's a very common thing. So I thought, okay, Lakshmi's going to know how to do that. But because she's savvy and because she has this amazing artistic ability, she's going to be better at it than any of her compatriots. And that's how she's going to make 10 times the money. So my mother knew I was fashioning the henna artist after her. This was supposed to be her imaginary life. And then it took me 10 years, however, to complete the henna artist long after my mother's death. Actually, she died about two years after I had started two, three years after I had started working on it. And, you know, in the time that followed, I took two years off, I took a year off, I took six months off. And, you know, I mean, I had to pay bills, right? So I had to keep working in my yeah. marketing and advertising. And uh, during that time, I got to know these characters so well, because they were living with me in me around me in my imagination, when I slept and when I woke up. And so then when I started, when I, when I put the henna artist to bed, Malik from the henna artist, who's only eight years old there, started telling me, I have a story and you need to write my story. And that's when I started writing The Secret Keeper. But I already knew so much about his life, his past life, his future life, that it only took me two years to finish The Secret Keeper. And it will only take me another two years to do the third book in the trilogy, which will be about the adult Radha, the 13-year-old sister of... Uh, Lakshmi, who gets pregnant in The Henna Artist. Wow, so much in there. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. Like just for you to be able to to be learning, like you say, learning about the whole craft of writing a novel at the same time as having those experiences with your mother, it must have been just amazing. I just got goosebumps when you were talking about it. I have always loved books set in India and I think it started with A Suitable Boy many years ago did some and still do some writer ambassador work for an organization called Rim to Read, which works in. I India. do too. Has, do you? I do Fantastic. too. I'm an author advocate for the Room to Read. Yeah. Me too. Okay, oh, wow. That's amazing. And on the podcast, we've always promoted Rim to Read. So this is, this is brilliant. But I went to India about, oh, I can't even remember, probably about 10 years ago now, and to look at the Room to Read programs. And we were in Rajasthan and Jaipur. Udapur, it was just beautiful. So reading your books has just brought that whole thing back to life for me. It's been really wonderful, actually. The way you capture, you know, the, the sensory images of the street and, and the lives and the colour, and, and the colour obviously reflected in your gorgeous covers too. You know, Pamela, one of the things that an in, uh, interviewer sometimes asked me is, uh, did you create this kind of lush and vibrant environment of Jap work? 
or does it really exist? And I'm like, it really exists. You step off any plane or train or car or bus in India, and you are immersed in sights and sounds and colors like you have never experienced before. So I wanted to capture that and immerse my readers in that environment too, because I think that once your reader is with you in your environment and can actually experience all the same things that you're trying to convey on that page, then I think they're also with your characters and they're walking with you in this whole narrative. Yeah, for sure. And and I'm, that's what I'm loving about The Secret Keeper. I'm actually going to stop reading The Secret Keeper soon because I want to go back and read The Henna Artist and then come <laughs> back on to The Secret Keeper. So, but Well, you know, I, I, I designed both of them as standalones. I mean, yeah. you, you can read either novel and I try to give as much background as I can in The Secret Keeper of Jaipur so that people don't have to read The Henna Artist. And one of the things I've tried to do is I'm trying to learn and do new things with every novel I write. So while the henna artist is very interior, it's really about the uh, these women and their interior uh, lives and the way they're managing their agencies and their lives. The Secret Keeper of Jaipur is uh, a little bit more of an external exploration about what's happening with the smuggling operations in India, what's happening with uh, the building construction that Malik is involved in. And so there's a little bit more of a mystery to the Secret Keeper of Jaipur that isn't in the henna artist as much. And then with the third book, I'm even trying something new. I'm just going to keep that under wraps for now. But I like to just keep exploring my life as a writer. This is a great opportunity for doing that, right? As long as these books are getting published, I may as well, you know, grow as a writer as well. (laughs) Absolutely. So just going back to the henna artist, Alka, when you, you finished that and you'd you know, gone through the whole drafting revision process, at what point did you think, okay, I'm going to look for a publisher and how did you go about I had an easy route to publication in that sense. When I was, I think on my fourth or fifth draft of The Henna Artist, my one of my professors from my master's program, I asked her, would you please send this off to your uh, literary agent? Because everybody in my program, all of my professors, my thesis advisors had loved the novel. They had loved the idea of the novel and the idea of Lakshmi and the idea of henna art and so on. And they liked the way I wrote. So I asked Anita, I said, listen, would you, since you have written a book that also takes place in another country in another time period, I think your agent would really like this. She thought about it for a while. And then she worked on making a few more changes in the novel with me. And then she did send it off to her agent. And the next thing I knew, her agent was calling me and saying, I love this novel. I love this character. I want to work with you on this. Now that happened at about year four and it took me still another six years before she said the novel was ready to be sent off to a publisher. So I got really lucky in the sense that I had a literary agent who would not let the book out to a publisher until she felt that it had everything in it that she could use to sell the book. See, because I never had to sell it to a publisher, right? She had to sell it to a publisher. And in order for her to sell it, it had to have all the ingredients of character, world building, the ability to write about another world, but make it clearer for all audiences around the globe, what is happening and the cultural references that I'm making and what they mean. And then of course, this whole story had to hang together and have enough tension over 350, 400 pages for her to invest her time and energy then taking it to a publisher. So towards the end of the 10 years, I was actually kind of upset with her because I thought, how much longer is she going to have me keep working on this novel? How much, how many more changes can I possibly make? I think we're on draft 25 now. And so I got kind of upset and I said, listen, if what you're trying to tell me is that this book will never be published and you'd rather not send it off to a publisher, then just tell me now and I'll go find another literary agent. And she said, no, that's not what I'm telling you at all. No, no, no. You know, as a debut author, you have to be so careful and so right on with that first book. If you do not write a bestseller first time around, it's very hard to get a second book contract and a third book contract in this day and age. So you 
you just have to come out of the gate running. And so I, I really, at the time, I was kind of dismissive of that and so frustrated with how many drafts I'd had to write. But in the end, I think she was absolutely right because then within two months, she had sold it and we got a nice contract and we got all of the, the rights that we wanted to keep and the rights that we wanted to sell. And then I just ended up with this hugely supportive staff at Mira Books, which is a division of HarperCollins. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have had a better team of people working on this with me. So it all worked out in the end. Yeah. yeah. But but how, how long did that take to get there? You know, a lot of people say to me, oh, you're like an overnight success with your first book. No, it took me <laughs> 10 years and 30 drafts. <laughs> yeah. And learning so much along the way, I imagine, too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Quite yeah. a lot about just the craft of writing, of the pacing. I didn't really understand pacing of the the plot. And also, I think the organization, oftentimes when I was first starting out, I would forget that I had left off a character in chapter three and then suddenly reintroduced them in chapter 10. And, you know, my reviewer or it was either my agent or my thesis advisors would tell me, hey, by the way, whatever happened to that character? (laughs) You know, all of a sudden they show up, where where have they been all this time? I totally forgot about them. I'd have to go back to chapter three as a reader in order to, you know, remember who they were. And you cannot do that to your readers. You have to take your reader along on this journey with you so that they know at every step of the way where everybody is situated and what they're doing. That takes time. That takes a lot of preparation and energy and organization in your own head or on a piece of paper. Yeah, for sure. And and you do, I know in The Secret Keeper, and I imagine it's the same in The Hen and Artist, Elka, you do have a large cast of characters. And I really appreciated that little sort of introduction to the characters that you have at the beginning of the book. Just so, you know, every now and then I just flick back, oh, who's that? Yep. Okay. Got it. I got so lucky. You know, that was actually my agent's doing. She said, why don't you put a cast of characters in the front? Because it's going to be really hard for people to remember all of these names unless they are South Asian. And, you know, we are going for a global audience. So that's, you know, that's not going to work. And then, of course, we followed suit in the doing the same thing in The Secret Keeper. And we'll do the same thing in book number three. And mm-hmm. I do get comments from readers all the time saying, I keep referring back to the cast of characters. In the beginning, it was really hard for me to remember their names, but I referred to the cast of characters. But then after a while, I didn't need to do that anymore. I totally understood who they were and where they were in the story. Yeah, they become real to you, don't they? At what point did you envision it as a trilogy? I think when I started writing book number two, I wanted to also include Radha's story. In book number two, Malik is now 20 years old, and he is uh, being sent down to have an apprenticeship at the Jabber Palace. He is now more in an adult child slash parent relationship with Lakshmi, right? Lakshmi has been his ward for the last 12 years. She has sort of raised him, and he has been given this wonderful boarding school education courtesy of Samir Singh from book number one. So, you know, what I what I wanted to do in this book was really talk about Malik and Radha, uh, Lakshmi's sister from the first novel, as grown-ups. So what has happened in the intervening years? How have they grown into adults? How has their relationship with Lakshmi changed as a result of their growing up and their experiences? And I realized that I had so much to say about Malik that I could not do Radha also justice in book number two. So I thought, you know what? I can, I have enough to say about Radha that I think this should be a book number three. And then I realized, oh, there's three books here. I think it should be a trilogy. And uh, Radha's story is going to advance the story once again, another four years or so to 1973. And she's going to be living in Paris. So we're going to be in Paris in book number three. We're going to be in Jaipur and we're going to be in Agra. Fantastic. Wow. Going, going global for sure. Yeah. And I think that with each book, I'm also trying to say something a little bit different. So, you know, in book number one, I'm saying, look at these ancient traditions, look at these ancient healing remedies that have been carried forward for millennia in the East. Perhaps the West could do a huge favor to their constituencies by 
adopting some of these, you know, or, or even just learning more from the East about some of these medicinal remedies. So that's kind of what I'm trying to say in The Henna Artist. In The Secret Keeper of Jaipur, I am, you know, once again, trying to let the world know that there are many stories of India. There's not just the Hindus with their caste system, but there's also these nomads who live all the way up in the Himalayas. They don't have a caste, they don't have class systems, but they have their own ways of being that I think we can all learn from and gain from also. And then in book number three, what I'm trying to say is that South Asians have, you know, traveled the entire world and adopted many different countries in their lifetimes. So we have South Asians in almost every country of the globe. And I think that wherever they go, they try to contribute very positively to the culture, either positively to the economy of the culture or to the politics or just in raising children who are going to grow up to be thoughtful and positive uh, contributors to that society. Mm, that's great. It's such a wonderful progression over the, the whole trilogy. And I'm just thinking, just going back to the henna artist, when you were talking about that experience where you were learning things from your mom about, you know, Indian culture and, and all that, that must have been just such a wonderful experience for you to have that time with her and to be able to put her story in part into the book almost as a memorial to her life. Yes. And although my story very much is different, you know, from the way my mother's story was, my mother was married at 18, Lakshmi's married at 15. Lakshmi's married to a poor rickshaw driver in the village. My mother was married to an up and coming engineer in the city. My mother had always lived in the cities. And so, you know, there, my mother was middle class. Lakshmi is not middle class, but wanting to be middle class, right? So there are a lot of differences between the two. But Lakshmi has my mother's patience. She also has her integrity and her resilience. Like no matter what situation my mother was placed in, whether it was moving house over all of those years in India or moving halfway around the world when we came to the United States and then acclimating her three children to a whole new culture, a whole new school system and everything. And also learning for herself how to cook and deal with all of the ingredients that she couldn't easily get mm -hmm. in, a, yeah. in the West that she could so easily shop for in the East. You know, I think that her resilience also shows through in Lakshmi. But what Lakshmi has in terms of her business savvy, that kind of comes from my experiences in the corporate world, because my mother didn't get to have a career of her own. But it's my experiences in the corporate world. It's my experiences navigating the patriarchy. It's my experience, you know, trying to get those grubby hands off of me. Because as women, we have yeah. all experienced the grubby hands, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. There's so many different ingredients in there. So, Alka, just moving on a little bit, you talk on your website about the fact that you don't really see yourself as a full-time writer. How do you go about, well, what's your writing process, basically? You know, how do you go about getting the words onto the page and then, and then getting to the end? I think my writing process is so different from other writers whom I have spoken to. Because I am a visual writer, I really think about uh, scenes first. They come to me like little movies. And as movies, I see characters moving around. I see the colors. I see, uh, I can actually smell what's happening in that scene. I see the clothing that people are wearing. I see the furniture in the room. I see the patterns of the room. I see the books in the room. I see everything. And so as I see this scene, I let it play out in my head. And I think, oh, well, that's interesting that the characters are doing that. What if they were doing something different? And then I play around with that just in my mind in that scene. And as I start to develop this scene, it might take me another week, another month to actually write it down on a piece of paper or write it down on my computer or my lap. I let it brew for a long time. And I take long walks. I take like four mile walks. I ride my bike. I take baths. I take these really long baths. I love baths. And I have a, a friend of mine from college pointed out to me, I have three bath scenes in The Secret Keeper of Jepper, one for each of the major female characters. And I thought, oh my God, that must be because I love baths. But yeah, I think about my book in the bath, in the shower. You know, I'm always thinking about these scenes and they are getting richer and richer in my mind. And then finally, I will start putting it down. When I have one scene down, it leads to other questions that I need to figure out the answers to. And those answers will come to me once again 
like a scene. I'm wondering sometimes if maybe the reason that I see my book as scenes is because of my work in advertising, right? Mm. Because before I could write a commercial, I had to sort of visualize it in my head first. I had to visualize the characters, the dialogue they would be speaking, the setting they would be in. And I think I've grown so used to that. It's such a practice for me that I think that's why I, I also write exactly the same way. Scenes are very important to me, and I need to be able to be in them viscerally in order to write about them. It sounds like a great process. And as you say, the advertising experience has no doubt come in handy in quite a few ways. So because you were writing the henna artist over that long period of time and going through the MFA and and doing all the visits to India and learning about the whole craft of writing, which I mean, we're always learning about, right? But how different was the writing of The Secret Keeper to the writing of The Henna Artist for you? Well, I think in The Henna Artist, I was really working on the craft of writing. I was really trying to figure out how to go deeper into characters, how to actually describe how their bodies feel when they're experiencing anger or happiness or, you know, sort of sexual joy. But in The Secret Keeper of Jaipur, I didn't have to think so much about the craft of writing, because I feel like I I know how to do that now. I know how to get into the heads of the characters. I know how to describe settings. I know how to paint the pictures. With The Secret Keeper, it was really just about the plot. You know, how do I figure out where we're going to go from Jaipur to Shimla? How am I going to connect those two places? How am I going to connect the fact that Mimi, our new character, the nomadic woman in The Secret Keeper from the Himalayas, how is she going to fit into this whole narrative? How is she going to work into the plot? So I think it was more about plot and how I could get all of these characters involved in that than it was about figuring out, you know, going deeper into characters. I already know all these characters. And uh, the two new ones that we've created were... I don't know. They just came like fully formed to me. One of them, of course, as I said, is Nimni, our nomadic woman. She's a widow with two small children. And then the other one is Motilal, the jeweler, because I have experienced those jewelers when I have gone to India. They are family friends. They make sure that they know every family who comes in. They make sure they know everybody in that family. And they keep an eye on the various daughters and sons who are going to be coming back uh, for their wedding gold and their wedding dowries. And so they maintain great relationships with these families for generations so that they will come back again and again and buy jewelry from these guys. So Motilal was just sort of, you know, he was just an amalgamation of all of these different jewelers I have met every time I go to India. (laughs) Fantastic. And of course, just going back to your advertising experience, Alka, which brings me on to talking about this whole idea of branding and, you know, creating this sort of profile, I guess, for yourself as an author. The experience you'd had in advertising must have come in, I imagine, very handy for that. But how did you go about creating that whole author brand? Was it something that was really natural for you? Can you tell us a bit about that? I think that this was really natural for me. About a year before The Henna Artist was published, my editor at Mira Books, and you know, she had me go through five more drafts once she got a hold of the manuscript. But she told me, you need to develop a social media presence. You have absolutely no presence online. I said, I know I like it that way because I'm not a huge <laughs> social media person. I mean, look at my age. I'm not, you know, I'm not out there, you know, making reels all the time. And so she said, uh, yes, but you know, social media is a great way for authors to really talk about the content of their books. And I hadn't thought about it that way. I only thought social media was about taking selfies and taking pictures of food that I was eating. Uh, But I didn't realize that it can actually go a lot deeper than that for an author. So I started writing about the Indian food in both of my books. I started writing about the lives of these characters and also the life of my mother in the 1950s and 60s. I started writing about, or I started, you know, painting pictures of what's happening in Jaipur and the buildings that I describe in Jaipur that are in both books. So so it was really interesting that I actually got into it just as if I were creating an advertising or marketing campaign. And so a year prior to the publication of The Henna Artist, I had already started a, a following of people who wanted to see these rich photos, these colorful photos, this heritage and the traditions that I was talking about. By the time the book came out, 
and uh, the pandemic was upon us and I could not even have a book launch. I couldn't even go to a bookstore and have a book signing. I couldn't go to a library and do an author event. None of those things happened. I was able to reach out to, to my social media and say, would you please call me and let's do a presentation. I don't care if you have five people or three people or a hundred people. I will talk to you about my book because I don't even have a launch. I can't even talk to anybody about my mm. book. And so the Hinaratus, we, sorry, Elka, the Hinaratus came out last year, didn't it? So it, it came out March the 10th, 2020. Right. <laughs> and so on March right the 11th, when, yeah. Yeah. March the 11th, 2020 is when the World Health Organization said, hey, everybody, you got to oh. shelter in place because we have a global pandemic. So what happened is um, that now I have reached 505 book clubs in the last year and a half. That's how many I have done around the world. And it's been lovely to talk to people around the world who are so hopeful, so open to other cultures, so open to learning about people different from themselves, that I've actually felt very hopeful this last year at a time when I think a lot of people felt hopeless or isolated or unconnected. I felt really connected to people around the world. And I feel like I'm talking to my tribe. I'm totally talking to my tribe. You know, these are people who love to read, who love to really get um, entrenched in the narrative and entrenched in the characters, invested in the characters' lives. Mm. I love that about them because that's how I get when I read. Fantastic. So I'm guessing that Instagram is your social media of choice. Yes. Yes. And is that something that your publisher then really fully supported you on? Did you get much help from them or or is it you just sort of took it and ran? I just took it and ran with it. And, you know, I asked them, I said, you know, do you have suggestions for what I what I should do? Should I hire a publicist? Should I hire a social media expert? And they didn't really have any um, suggestions for me because I think they were still waiting to see if the book was going to do well. Once the book starts doing well, and this is a cautionary tra- tale for all authors, once your book starts doing well, your publisher is going to get behind you 100%. And then they do start telling you, okay, you need to do this and let us set up this event for you. And we will do all of the promotion work. You just have to show up and talk to the people. They really start doing a lot of that kind of work. Initially, what they will do for you is they will get you some articles in uh, magazines and literary places. They will get you some radio interviews around the country. Those are the initial things that they will do. And they will do that push for about a month and a half, two months after your book is released. After that, if your book still hasn't taken off, um, you it's the onus is upon you to set up all of your bookstore events and library events. But lucky for me, Reese Witherspoon said, I love this book. I want everybody to know about this book. And that happened on May the 1st, 2020. And as soon as she told everybody about it, as soon as I got to do a little Zoom chat with her on May the 1st, the books are start started taking off. So by May 14th, I was getting contacted by the uh, media companies who wanted to option the rights to the henna artist. By May 29th, we were on the New York Times bestseller list and all those other bestseller lists followed suit. So that is how quickly everything happened after Reese Witherspoon's endorsement. She is a phenomenal influencer. Mm. She also is You know, I think it's because she's kind of like the girl next door. She's not super glam. And so you can trust her. You know, she just seems very likable. And she says, hey, I like this book. Maybe you'll like this book, too. And I think that it's it's her likability that makes it really easy for women to say, you know what, I think I might pick up that book. And sure enough, now when you look at the New York Times bestseller list in just four short years since she started her Hello Sunshine group, now you see four or five or six of her selects on that list. That is phenomenal for one person to have accomplished. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? I think that's every author's dream to get their book into the hands of Reese Witherspoon. So congratulations. That's brilliant. Thank you. And by the way, don't ask me how it happened because I had (laughs) nothing to do with it. (laughs) It turns out, and I don't know if you know this, Pam, but it turns out that there are scouts in Hollywood who are constantly looking at new properties, new books coming out, uh, a short film, a uh, viral video. They're looking at these new properties and thinking, hey, this could be a great idea for such and such a client of mine. And then they will forward that information or that property onto them and say, have a look at this. I think you might be interested. 
That is the only way I can think of that Reese Witherspoon got a copy of The Henna Artist. And then she said, I'm going to uh, you know, promote this as a book, but I'm not going to do this as a, as a movie or a TV series because you know, she will do those kinds of productions if they have like a major starring role for her, because these yeah. are actually vehicles for her to star in. And unfortunately, in the henna artist, unless she's going to turn herself into a South Asian, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine, Alka, that apart from the fantastic stories, of course, we were talking before I started recording about your fabulous covers. And yeah. I mean, it shows the importance, I think, of having an eye-catching cover, and and these two are absolute stunners. So would you be able to share that story about your idea for the original cover? Yes. So, uh, you know, I thought I am going to call the henna artist with my title, which was Enemy of the Crocodile, because there is a in the book that goes, only a fool remains in the water and stays an enemy of the crocodile. So I thought, you know, that's, this is what happens to Lakshmi throughout the novel. She becomes an enemy, even though she doesn't want to be an enemy of the inner circle of Parvathis. This is exactly what happens. But, and, and then of course, my idea for the cover was going to be have true crocodiles sort of get going at each other. And, you know, I thought with my experience in advertising and marketing, I'm sure this is going to sell. And uh, the publisher said, well, you know, we have a whole department that's kind of devoted to designing covers. Why don't you let them have a crack at it? And so they did. And they came up with this gorgeous, gorgeous cover. They shared their top four covers with me after they had vetted it internally. And this is the one that I responded to the most because it has that beautiful, rich uh, cinnamon color of the henna. And it also is uh, a woman coming out of the city palace. It looks like it could be Lakshmi after she has met with one of the Maharani's. So this was just perfect. And when I saw it, I said, oh my God, that's the cover. That's the cover. So then when the secret keeper of Jaipur, when they were working on that, I didn't even give them ideas for that one because I thought, okay, you know what? I think they do a great job. (laughs) I don't need to be involved in this process. But they were having a hard time with how do we convey, you know, secret keeper of Jaipur? How do we convey that as a, a visual? And they ran a lot of things past me, but none of them were exactly right. Like there might be a portion of the image that was correct. Maybe the woman was wearing clothes that wouldn't be worn by any of the women that are in the novel itself. And so I said, why don't you try the blue room of the city palace? It's a gorgeous room. It's Wedgwood blue and it's completely empty because the Maharajas would sit on these large pillows and entertain in these rooms. There's also, there's a blue room, there's a red room, and I think there's a yellow room as well. And so they pulled out the picture of the blue room. And then they married it to this woman who is uh, supposed to be Nimi, our nomadic woman with all of her sort of interesting jewelry. And she is presenting herself as if she might be presenting herself to her future family, which is really what Nimi is trying to do uh, in this story. So this just worked out beautifully. And then for the third cover, we don't know what the title is yet, because here's the other thing. They also come up with my titles, the publisher okay. does, because I obviously am lousy at titles. <laughs> so I'm learning, you know, I'm just, I'm learning and I'm, I give up my control when I need to, because there's no need for me to control every portion of this process. There are so many things that they know that I don't know. And one of them is how do you design a book cover and a title so that somebody will pull that off the shelf? Yeah, well, they're certainly eye-catching. They're absolutely stunning. Can't wait to see the third one. (laughs) (laughs) So can we just go back to Instagram for a minute, Alka? You know, your posts, they're very bright. You know, if you look at your grid on Instagram, it does have this very bright eye-catching feel about it. They're often animated. You do a lot of interviews, as you say, with other authors where you're talking to them on, you know, IGTV or um, on video. How have you gone about sort of building up that um, whole profile and deciding what to put on there, when to put it out? And how have you learned, I guess, more about the whole Instagram world? Okay. You know, nobody has asked me this and I love to share this with people. One is I watched a whole bunch of YouTube videos 
on how you have a better Instagram presence. I watched a whole bunch of videos on how to make sure your lighting is correct. Like I have three of these ring lights on me right now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, how, how to do that. And I didn't even know about ring lights until my younger brother called me one time and he goes, Elka, I just watched you on an interview. You don't have enough lights on you. I am sending you a ring light. So okay. that's how I got started <laughs> on these. But, but it was all about lighting on YouTube. And then it was about how often to post. I read all these articles about how often to post, what the content uh, should be uh, if you're an author. Uh, so I just learned a lot from the internet. And then I went to the Instagram accounts of people whom I admire or other authors who are doing something really vibrant. And I started looking at them to see what they're doing and how they're composing their posts so that they sort of look like of a piece. So everything kind of hangs together. And then, of course, there's my own personal preference for lots of color. You know, I love color. If you looked at my house, you would see that my couch is yellow. My uh, pillows are all yellow and orange and green, <laughs> you know? So my house is full of color. I love, love, love color. So that is what my uh, Instagram is like. I think that my personality is kind of energetic. So once again, my Instagram account sort of relays a lot of that energy that I feel. And I think that's why I, I start animating. I started animating a lot of my posts because I just like the energy of those. Yeah, that mood. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think I just I learned from the internet uh, a lot about how to do this. I don't think there's any definitive way that you can do an Instagram or a social media uh, account, because everybody's always inventing new things. Here's the latest thing I've learned that if you do more, uh, let's say video, like let's say I do a video, and I'm just talking about the craft of writing or something like that or I do a reel, or I do a TikTok video, those are hugely popular with viewers. So people will spend some time looking at those if you put those on. So there's a tip for anybody out there who is a writer and putting something out there, you know, put yourself on camera and talk about something that's interesting to your readers and viewers. Yeah. Do you think that's important, actually having yourself on there, you know, yes. photos and, and videos of yourself? Yeah, because if you think about yourself as a reader, don't you always want to know who is that writer? Mm. Like I always flip to the back and I go, okay, who is that? Okay, what, what do they look like? What do yeah, they me too. like? I, I wonder, I wonder what they're like in real person. You know, I wonder what they like to eat. I wonder if they have family. I wonder how old their children are. I am always you know, trying to figure them out. And so I thought, well, people must be trying to figure me out. So why don't I just show myself and say, this is what I sound like. This is what my energy level is like. This is, you know, what I look like. And, and here's the other thing that I think is really important when we are on camera, and maybe this is something I learned from my advertising days, we should always look as if we dressed up for the people uh, who are viewing us, I just feel like it's a sign of respect. I just feel like it's respectful to show up, but not just in my ratty old self, but just, you know, to say, look, I put on lipstick for you guys because this is important to me. I want you guys to actually pay attention to what I'm about to say. Yeah, see, see the best you. So are there any other tips that you would have, uh, Alka, for people who are thinking, yeah, I need to really ramp up my Instagram? I mean, your numbers sound like they skyrocketed pretty quickly, maybe partly because of the Reese Witherspoon thing. But were you surprised about the rapid increase in followers that you have garnered? Yes and no, because actually, Pamela, it, it kind of goes in waves. So right after the Reese announcement, I gained a few thousand followers and then it stopped. And mm. then I had to do something else in order to get another few thousand followers and another few thousand. Now there's like a steady increase all the time, like every every month or so, you know, I'll gain another thousand followers. But it it's something I have to create. I have to create some excitement around something in order to get that next wave of followers. There's no like huge, all of a sudden I've got 10,000. It doesn't work yeah. like that. And I think it's something that you always have to keep fresh. Your Instagram account has to stay fresh. You have to be doing things that are interesting. That's why I do a variety of different things. That's why I talk to authors whose books I'm interested in. That's why I do um, Instagram lives with people whose you know practice is interesting to me and relates to my books or maybe who are designing some uh, kind of Indian silks that I think are really interesting because those also relate to my books. There's so many subjects that uh, are ripe 
within my books for me to talk to other experts about. So I try to do that. I also speak to so many libraries and bookstores, and I try to help them by promoting when I'm going to be with them, I try to, you know, help promote that. So then they also feel like I'm their partner. This is also super important. I think as an author, you're in partnership with a lot of people when you're an author, keep that in mind and treat it like a business because it is a business. You know, you don't just write a book and then expect everybody to come find it because how are they going to know it's out there unless you're telling everybody it's out there. You need to tell people it's out there. You need to work with your publisher to make sure that they're on top of everything. Uh, You need to work with bookstores and libraries and anybody who wants to write an article about you. You need to answer them right away. When can we meet? When can I, you know, set up this time with you? Here's my bio. Here are all my photos, you know, set yourself these easy tasks in a file. That's really easy for your PR, for any of your media kind of appearances and make sure that you send that stuff out right away. I get so many requests for Q and A And I just always make sure what my deadline is. And I always deliver it before the deadline in case there's some problem. There's a lot of people now that both of these books are being translated into so many languages, the Hannah artist into 23 languages, the uh, secret keeper into six languages so far and growing. But when these get translated, your publishers from abroad can also be involved. And I tell them, hey, you guys in Spain or in Italy or in Russia, hey, you want me to do a little video to welcome readers into the translated version of my books? Please let me know. And they do. This is something that your publisher sometimes forgets, that when your work is being translated into other languages, there are more opportunities for you to market and um, you know promote your books. And so I go directly to them and I go, hey, how, how can I help you? And, and they always say, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, you know, most authors do not self-promote. Most authors do not say, how can I help you? And that's what I'm constantly asking everybody I'm in partnership with. How can I help you? I love that idea that you're saying in partnership with, you know, the publisher, the library, the bookseller, the reader. It's it's all about that partnership. And I think a lot of authors naturally introverted people. And I do think that a lot of us find that whole putting yourself out there quite difficult, you know, if that's not your personality. So what would you say to those authors about, you know, maybe trying to to push themselves that little bit harder to to get, you know, out there and talk about their books. Here's what I would say. You spent years pulling those words together one by one so that you could have a story to tell. You spent so much energy. You probably gave up some dinners. You probably, you know, gave up some family time. Maybe you gave up some exercise time, whatever it is you did to put that book out there. You spent quite a bit of energy putting it out into the world. Doesn't that energy now deserve to be put into letting the world know that you put it out there? Because if you don't do that, then it will die on the vine. It's just like, you know, you planted the flower in your garden and then you never watered it. It is going to die. You know, there's no way that it can survive on its own. You have to keep watering your wonderful work in order to get it to be seen and blossom into this fabulous plant that gives all these flowers <laughs> all over the world. <laughs> I love that. That's such a great way to look at it. Are you into TikTok as well, Alka? Have you you stepped into the TikTok world? I have not, but it's 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 my next uh, frontier. I need to get beyond, <laughs> you know, the there's TikTok and then there's Real, which is put out by Facebook and Instagram. And we recently, with my publisher, had Facebook talking to us and saying, "Okay, if you can get onto Real, we will help you. We will help promote you if you can." do some of the real stuff. So I have to try real and uh, get on it. And it's one more thing to learn, which means that it's going to take me a little bit of time to get better at it. And I feel like with promoting The Secret Keeper and working on book number three, all this, you know, and then talking to all these book clubs, uh, I'm just like, when am I going to have time to do a (laughs) real? Yeah, it's on the list. Yes. (laughs) 
Well, it's been fantastic to to talk to you, Alka, to hear about your writing and your books and your social media. I mean, we could talk for hours, I'm sure. But there's one question I do want to ask you. You're someone who, like myself, came to writing later in life. I My first book was published uh, when I was 50. <clears throat> and, you know, you, I think, were 51 when you enrolled in your MFA. Right. I think this thing out there, you know, I've spoken to some people and they say, oh, look, yeah, I really want to write a book, but it's a bit late now or I've left my run too late or, you know, that sort of idea. What's your thoughts on that? I hear from readers daily who say, you know what, seeing that you were able to publish uh, your first book at the age of 62, maybe I can do this now. You know, I'm 65 and I've always wanted to write this memoir about my experiences. I think I might start. Or they'll say something like, I have a passion project that I started 20 years ago, but life got in the way. I started having kids. I had a job. Maybe I can get back to that now. So I find that almost every single day, somebody is telling me they're inspired to change their lives as a result of seeing me and all of my silver hair, (laughs) my glasses and everything and saying, wow, maybe it's not too late for me. I do think that at any time of our lives, and especially I think, Pamela, at our age, yours and mine, I think that we have so much experience at this time. We have felt things, we have experienced grief and loss and love and joy and happiness and triumphs uh, and tragedy. And I think we have so much accumulated that we can write about. We have feelings that we have processed maybe through therapy or just through life itself that we can also bring to our narrative. I can write stuff now that I could never have written at the age of 20 or 30. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have enough life experience. I I, I couldn't have done it. You know, in my MFA program, we had a whole bunch of 20-somethings. And as I was in these classes and and we're all critiquing each other's work, right? You know, everybody shares, brings copies of their work and then everybody else reads it and then gives their opinion about it. As I was reading their stories, I thought, oh my gosh, they have so much to learn. You know, they don't know deep enough yet. They, They haven't gone deep enough into their experiences to really process what they've just written about. And so I, I felt that my age was actually a benefit. And I think everybody's age is a benefit. The older we are, the more we have learned about life and the more we can write about that. I also think that one of the other things that readers tell me is that the kinds of things I'm talking about in this book, the idea of women's agency, the idea that women deserve to make the choices that uh, are going to determine their destiny, the idea that women can be child-free and still nurturing you know, others, the idea that people can choose, that women can choose whether they want to have children or not. These are all things that readers write to me really resonate with them and give them permission to be whoever they are, give them permission to seize more of the power that I think they should always deserve to have anyway. Fantastic. It's so important, isn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Alka. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for sort of allowing me and I think allowing my mother, who is always present in my studio. I think she's always present in my mind and in my books and on the page. Thanks for allowing us the forum just to talk about our ideas and why we love doing what we're doing. I'm really looking forward to continuing to follow you on Instagram, maybe on TikTok very soon. And and just continuing on with reading your books. Thank you so much. Thank and you. thanks to all my Australian readers. I'm so excited that the books are in Australia. Yay! Oh, yay! Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w4wpodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, 
Every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. 